You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For August 7th, 2019, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. We have something a little different for you in this episode, a conversation with our old friend Jonathan Kumi, which was recorded before a live audience at Stanford University as part of Stanford Energy Week back in January. I spoke there at the invitation of Jeff Rutherford, a student at Stanford who is one of several members of the Stanford Energy Club, who are also fans of the show. Jeff and I conducted a workshop at the event to explore the tribal identities that are often in evidence in conversations about energy, a topic I hope to revisit in an upcoming episode of the show. And then Jonathan and I closed out the event with a freewheeling conversation, which was billed as a fireside chat about some of the interesting questions in energy transition. So rather than my interviewing a guest about what he or she knows, this episode consisted of the two of us having a friendly discussion about many of the things we don't know. We talked about the Vogue concept in energy transition to electrify everything, sometimes also called deep decarbonization. We discussed energy efficiency, conservation, electrification, low carbon fuels, and how to reduce greenhouse gases that are not the products of combustion. We explored some of the many fast changing trends in electric vehicles and how we're going to accommodate the loads of EVs on the power grid. We reviewed some of the many possible ways to move space heating and other thermal loads over to the power grid and how we might be able to meet those needs without combustion or electrification. We mused about how much electricity storage we'll really need in a deeply decarbonized future, including how much seasonal storage we'll need and what kinds. We talked about differences between economic optimizations made today for a future 20 to 30 years off and technical optimizations made along the way, and what the options might look like in 20 to 30 years, particularly if we are at the beginning of a vigorous and deliberate energy transition. And we kicked around the conundrum that McKay Miller raised in episode 63 about whether space heating, transportation, and other loads might find themselves in competition for economic carrying capacity on the grid as they become electrified. It was a really fun conversation with active audience participation, and although you may find some of the audience questions hard to hear because we didn't have a microphone for the audience, I think you'll find much to chew on in this wide-ranging conversation. Then in the news segment, we'll review some bids for solar plus storage projects in Hawaii. We'll touch on a new study by Energy Transition Show alumnus Bas van Rauven about how climate change will affect energy demand. We'll look at some possible implications of moving to low sulfur fuels for maritime shipping and some new electric ships. We'll note the effects of the European heat wave this summer. And we'll take a look at electric bus procurements at airports. But first, our fireside chat with Jonathan Kumi, recorded live at Stanford Energy Week on January 25th, 2019. So I'm Jeff Rutherford. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Stanford Energy Journal, and it's my great pleasure to introduce our two guests for our closing fireside chat. 
Both our guests have decades of experience fighting the good fight, thinking about climate change and energy transition. First, on the right, we have Chris Nelder. He's the host of the Energy Transition Show. He also works for the Rocky Mountain Institute in Boulder, Colorado, and heads the EV grid integration team. I've been listening to his podcast for a couple years, and it's excellent. I highly recommend it. Chris has also written books on energy and investing, as well as numerous articles in Nature, Scientific American, The Atlantic, Green Tech, Media, among others. Our next guest is Jonathan Kumi. Jonathan Kumi has a long and varied history studying solutions to the climate problem. He's currently special advisor to the chief scientist of the Rocky Mountain Institute. Previously, he lectured here at Stanford in the School of Earth Energy and Environmental Sciences, and he was also a research fellow at the Steyer Taylor Center for Energy Policy and Finance. I have experience working with Jonathan, collaborating on the Oil Climate Index Project, which aims to develop life cycle carbon impact scores for global crude oils. His latest book is Turning Numbers into Knowledge, Mastering the Art of Problem Solving, now out in its third edition. I'll let these two guys take it away. I think it'll be an excellent conversation to close out Energy Week, and I hope to see everybody at the alumni mixer afterwards. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Really a pleasure to address you folks today. Jonathan has been on my podcast three times, I think, and he shares a breadth of interest in energy transition similar to my own, and so decided to make it a regular thing to have him on the show once a year just to talk about everything that happened over the course of the year. So today, because this is structured as a fireside chat, we thought that rather than trying to talk about things that we know that you may not know, we want to talk about the things that nobody knows, because I think that's an interesting way to think about how the future of energy transition is unfolding. There's an awful lot of uncertainty. So today, we're gonna try to structure our conversation more or less around the new ambition to electrify everything. So what does that mean? As we get into deep decarbonization, as we try to electrify everything and essentially get combustion of fuels out of the system, how do we do that? And what don't we know about how to proceed with that? So with that setting, we should just mention sort of why electrify everything is kind of the new black in energy transition. Obviously, emissions are the key aspect of that, but there's actually more to it. There's efficiencies that you gain as you move away from direct combustion of fuels and into grid power-based technologies, specifically in terms of electric vehicles and space heating. So, you know, I think we all sort of understand how transitioning the power sector to clean energy produced by wind and solar means that we can get combustion out of the system. But transferring the loads of transportation and space heating over to the grid is a whole nother matter. So let's start with that. Let's start with electric vehicles. With electric vehicles, you're taking an internal combustion engine that might have an efficiency on the order of throw out a number. 15, 15%? 10, 15%. I was going to say 15%. I don't know. Any engineers in the audience want to debate that? Okay. You take that load, you transfer it over to the power grid. Now you have the opportunity to deal with either combustion power plants that operate at much higher efficiencies. You could get 2x, 3x right there alone, or preferably over the long term, we're going to wind and solar where you have zero combustion and efficiency isn't really the problem anymore. It's more about 
capital, right? So there's that. Secondly, transferring over space heating, you had some thoughts about the efficiencies that you gain when you do that. Yeah, so one of the key things to think about is that when you're dealing with combustion, it's a relatively easy way to deliver heat. And the transition to electrification means a wholesale switch to heat pumps. And a heat pump is like an air conditioner that runs in reverse. It takes heat from one reservoir and moves it over. And typically, there's a factor of two or three efficiency gain in that. That's dependent on climate, and it's dependent on other kind of ambient conditions and technology and so on. But the main idea is to take fuel heating and turn that into an electrified system that uses heat pumps at much higher efficiency. If you can do that at the same time as you are switching the generation system to non-combustion, then you are avoiding a whole series of other losses related to combustion in power plants. And those can lead to very substantial efficiency improvements. In addition, there are benefits like human benefits and economic benefits to doing this transition as well. So in a household, let's just say, for the sake of argument, we're just gonna get rid of natural gas in new houses. Well, if you do that, suddenly your source of carbon monoxide in the house goes away. The source of other pollutants in the house go away. The heat pump itself, at least the better ones, are variable speed. They tend to be quieter than the furnaces. and you also avoid these fixed costs from the gas system. So you don't pay the monthly fee to have a gas line. And so all those things turn out to be pretty important. If you're just thinking incrementally, you would miss the possibility of simply not having a gas line and avoiding all these potential problems. It also means you can make the house tighter because you don't have as much indoor air pollution. So there's a whole series of reasons why you'd want to go all the way this way, and I think most people in the policy field tend to think incrementally. They tend to think about, let's get a higher efficiency heat pump or a higher efficiency furnace. But if you go whole hog and think about the whole system, just electrifying the whole house has some serious benefits that are not obvious if you're thinking incrementally. And there's some exergy benefits too. So for example, why would you take natural gas and burn it in a home furnace at 1500 degrees or whatever in order to try to raise the interior of the house by three degrees when you could take a heat pump that's actually delivering you two or three times as much energy as you use to run the heat pump in the form of thermal gain, essentially. Right, and so you're implying the need to understand what task we're doing with the energy. And so back in the late 70s, Amory Levins did one of the first analyses of heat quality. He called it energy quality, and nowadays we call it exergy. But if you have very high temperature heat, which fossil fuels are capable of creating, that's high exergy. If you have a very low temperature, like inside a house or a water heater, that's a lower exergy thing. And when you take a high exergy fuel and burn it to create low temperature, you're basically destroying energy quality could call it that. So electricity also is a high exergy fuel, but it allows you then to have this benefit of the heat pump multiplying the efficiency by two or three, yes. It used to be in the old days, and maybe this is where I'm trying to catch up, that you use electricity, heat water, and then radiate it around your house, and that was totally inefficient, right? So that's not what you're talking about. Resistance heating, that's what you're talking about. You just, that has no place in this, am I right? 
Correct. You would have a heat pump water heater. You have a heat pump to deliver heating in the houses. And so you might still have a toaster. That's a resistance heater. But anytime there's a large source of heat, and heating and water heating are the two biggies inside residential buildings. It's just that heat pumps are so much more efficient than the old style resistance heating. Yeah. But either way, yeah, no, that's a good point to make. But either way, you're going to wind up taking that load of heating and getting it off of direct combustion and onto the power grid, where at least then you have the option in some point in the future to provide that power from clean sources, right, where they're not producing any CO2. So, okay, so we understand sort of the general benefits of taking transportation onto the power grid or space heating onto the power grid. Let's talk about what that actually means to the power grid. Like, what's the magnitude of this change? Okay, so there's two parts of it. One is you could think about aggregate energy use or electricity use, and then there's also local and regional capacity constraints that may happen. And those capacity constraints may be driven not by the average energy consumption of the devices, but by peak energy consumption. That tends to be how it works. And so if you put a lot of EVs on a local distribution grid, and it also has a high heating load, well, the EVs may or may not be charging when the heating load is happening, but it's a question you have to ask, and certainly it will drive capital costs related to the distribution grid if you somehow put a lot of load on and don't have a way to spread it out or control it. We're definitely going to have to increase the capacity of the electricity yeah. supply system yeah, so we talked in order about, to accommodate these loads. So we talked about earlier the light-duty vehicles. So there's about 3 billion auto vehicle miles traveled in the United States every year, and each electric vehicle goes three miles per kilowatt hour. So, Although I've heard considerably better from people that drive a right, new leaf like a granny. Well, They're saying they the, can get the as much as five. Three, so Tesla Model 3 is better than that, but that would include bigger yeah. EVs. Yeah. Um, but let's just make it easy because three is a nice round number. Right. But, but what that means is that it's about 1,000 terawatt hours to run the entire light-duty vehicle fleet in the United States. So, and the current consumption, annual consumption, is about 4,000 terawatt hours. So it's about a 25 or 30% sort of effect. If you start doing the larger trucks, then that's going to add another 5% or something like that. But that's the order of magnitude for vehicles. And then there's a question of heat loads. And the heat loads can be pretty substantial, and I think it's the local distribution effects of the heat loads that might be the biggest issue. You know, it also is a climate-dependent thing. So heat pumps have lower efficiency when they're in a very cold climate because they have a higher temperature gradient. They're pulling heat from the outside, putting it into the house. The colder it is outside, the less heat there is out there to pull. And so traditional heat pumps typically have cut out in the kind of 32 degree, 32 to 40 degree range. There are these new heat pumps that use CO2 as the refrigerant, and they're not particularly efficient at cooling, but when it comes to big temperature differences, they're actually very good at heating. And so one of my friends in Berkeley has put one into his house because he doesn't think he needs cooling. But in any case, it's a way to get high efficiency on the heating side, even in a place like Minnesota or Maine. But the devil is always in the details. But I guess the point is there are new technologies that allow you to put these highly efficient heat pumps in places where we couldn't do it before. Right. And so then you have to start thinking about all the things that we don't know. So on the space heating side, it does seem like heat pumps are kind of the way to go, even for water heating. But 
depends on the climate. If you're doing a ground source heat pump, which some people confusingly call a geothermal heat pump, where you're actually running the heat collection loop underground, you're going to get a lot more of a temperature differential to work with, and it's going to work in pretty much any climate because it's a nice, steady, more or less 55 degrees once you get about six feet down pretty much anywhere. So there's plenty of heat to work with there. Problem is, it's just very expensive to do that digging, lay that coil. And over time, actually, I think there's some evidence that you can actually deplete the heat from a ground source heat pump, and it stops working as well. Yeah, so that depends on your climate. If you have a climate like Central Texas where it's very cold and very hot, hot in the summer, cold in the winter, it balances out. So there are issues around that. But it points to this question of where can heat pumps be used effectively? And what are the loads that are most effectively converted to heat pumps? What are the regions where that? So this is something where we don't have a good inventory of that. We don't have that thing that Amory did in the 70s for heating in all sectors, which somebody needs to do. But we also, just on the building side, I think an analysis of uh, where heat pumps could be applied to switch from gas to electricity is something that is sorely needed and has mm. not been done. And then, of course, there's the air source heat pumps, which are much cheaper and easier to install because you don't have to bury a ground loop. On the other hand, those don't work so well in super cold climates because there's just not enough ambient heat in the air. Yeah, they're getting better. They're, they're getting, getting better, better but, but I wouldn't recommend one for Calgary. Yeah. Just saying. All right. So. That's on the supply side. And then on the demand side, there's an awful lot of new technologies as well that are potentially going to come into play. First of all, efficiency, obviously improving the efficiency of our built environment. It's a hard thing to do to retrofit insulation in buildings, very hard to do. It's so hard to do that nobody really counts it as a real possible wedge of solutions going forward because the turnover of the building stock is so slow. But there was a gentleman I interviewed on my podcast a couple months ago who has a way of helping to finance, essentially, HVAC systems for commercial buildings so that the commercial building owner doesn't have to become an expert in buying an HVAC system the next time they're ready to change out the heating and cooling needs of their building. They can actually buy it as a service from a provider. So that's an interesting innovation, I think, on the demand side. Right now, there's just this massive stock of buildings in the U.S., commercial buildings and industrial buildings especially, that are running these very old, inefficient HVAC systems. And so there's a huge opportunity to upgrade them, especially if you can do it without imposing a big capital cost on the building owner. But we need to be able to scale that kind of financing. And as you say, we need to have a better inventory of where the opportunity is and really focus in on that. I think you're also pointing to the need to understand other possible business models. So selling heating as a service is a business model. Yeah. It's the way that a company could make money while supplying the service. And it's a way of avoiding this problem in many existing structures where there's a kind of capital constraint. People don't want to spend a lot of extra money. It's hard in residences just because the energy flows and the dollar flows for energy are relatively small, even for heating and cooling. And so it's not a simple problem for existing. No, I mean, the simple payback on doing a retrofit like that for a commercial building could be too long to even be worthwhile unless you're doing it as a service. Right. The other aspect of efficiency that I think is important is that if you 
design the buildings, either retrofit them or design them properly in the first place, it means you can use a smaller heat pump. And so there's a capital cost benefit when you do an integrated design that if you're just thinking about it as we're going to put this new heat pump into a structure that hasn't been optimized, it's much more expensive. And so that's part of what we don't know is how to get those new business models and this new integrated design way of thinking about things into the process so that people can start getting the benefits of downsizing their equipment when they put in better windows and more insulation and tighter envelope. Yeah, and you know, part of the problem there is that historically we've done efficiency upgrades or even this kind of equipment upgrade through oftentimes state programs, which are programs. They're designed to say, all right, we're going to spend this much money, we're going to allocate this much per customer or this much per unit, and we've got to administer those programs, and then we're going to hope that it provides some sort of a efficiency gain over time. But that may or may not actually be provable or measurable, which is why people like Matt Golden have proposed, you know what, we should only pay for efficiency as measured at the meter, right? So there's a whole different type of a business model that leads to hopefully more effective spending on efficiency. But we don't exactly have that in place yet either. Like the actual implementation of that is still an ongoing challenge. I think another aspect relates to kind of local retrofits. Oh, do you have a question? You want to start with that? Yeah, so I can jump to I'm really interested because I work in an affordable housing company. We are going through this fuel switching pilot process. And what I'm hearing is if I have an owned gas, hot water, and if you're changing to heat pumps, is there still a need to have a backup little hot water gas order? Or is there a way like you can 100% swap out? So boilers are harder because the temperature differential is bigger. So it's not just getting to the temperature of the interior. It's actually you want to get it up to close to almost actually boiling, right, or close to it. So normal heat pumps have potentially some issues there, particularly at low outside temperatures. And so there will typically be a backup heater. And for most air source heat pumps, that's an electric backup heater. But you can get the dual-fueled ones. So I don't know. Boilers are tough. Boilers are probably the toughest problem for this electrifying. I think you may end up having to do that for that. You may still be able to get electric cooking inside the house and then electrify other parts of it, but the boiler is a hard one. So let's talk for a minute about what we don't know about transitioning transportation over to the power grid. So this is an area that I work on in my work at Rocky Mountain Institute is electric vehicle grid integration and how do we support those loads on the electric grid and how do we make sure that we're doing those load integrations in a way that's beneficial to the grid and not just imposing, for example, an even higher peak on the California duck curve, for example, for those of you who are familiar with that issue. You're trying to reduce the need for ramping, essentially, from when the belly of the duck is in the middle of the day when solar is cranking and the net load that is needed is very, very low. And then the sun goes down and all of a sudden 7 o'clock rolls around and everybody goes home and turns things on at home. You've got this massive ramp that's needed in the California power grid. So how do you use the shiftable load of EVs to mitigate that? The nice thing about EVs is it's a load that can be moved in space and time. So you can shift it into the belly of the load curve, but you can also 
do it at different places on the grid, which can also be useful depending on the hosting capacity of different nodes of the grid. So there's a very granular kind of analysis that we could do to figure out where is it really best to site charging depots on the grid in order to provide that power at the lowest possible cost to all ratepayers, right? So once you start digging into that question, you find a whole host of other things that we don't know. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some news items that aren't all that new, but that I just never got around to mentioning in previous news segments and didn't want to end up in the dustbin. Item 1. Back in March, the Hawaiian Public Utilities Commission approved contracts for a combined capacity of 247 megawatts of solar and 998 megawatt hours of energy storage, priced from 8 to 10 cents per kilowatt hour. That makes the systems cheaper than both gas peaker plants and the petroleum burning generators that have powered the islands for decades, which cost around 15 cents per kilowatt hour to run, according to the utility. With the full capacity of all six solar projects supported by four hours worth of battery storage, the new projects will be able to supply electricity during the evening peak and on cloudy days, helping to shift solar from an intermittent midday supply of electricity to a firm dispatchable resource. And because the new projects are utility scale and not the rooftop solar arrays that are more common in Hawaii, they will more than triple the current capacity of utility scale solar in the state and help it reach its mandate of getting 100% of its electricity from renewable energy sources by 2045. Item 2. A study published in June by the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis, or IASA, found that by 2050, climate change could increase the global demand for energy by as much as 27% with modest warming and as much as 58% with vigorous warming. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. 
Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.